heard, all right? There is a major university here in our beautiful town of Davis, all right? And one of the great privileges and joys that we have as a church community is walking with students uh, through this time in their life that they're here uh, in our community to study and to learn and to grow uh, vocationally in what God has called them to do. And so we love being able to, to do that with them and then also uh, celebrate with them when they get to the, the end of the year. And as uh, they head into finals week uh, this week, as David mentioned a few moments ago, uh, we want to do a couple of things this morning. One, we want to acknowledge that we are about to head into the summer and to a different rhythm for students. Some of them will be sticking around, others will be going home, some are going to be traveling all over the world uh, doing all kinds of different and very interesting things. And so we want to pray for all of our students as they move into the summer months that uh, God continues to, to work in their life and that they're sensitive to his leading uh, as well. Also, though, we do want to pause for a moment this morning and acknowledge uh, graduating folks and those who are going to be moving on and, and who we unfortunately have to say goodbye to. This is part of the bittersweetness of uh, being here in Davis with uh, having so many students. So this morning, and, and this is actually going to be something we do a few times this summer as people uh, roll out uh, at different dates, but today we're going to acknowledge two people. So Denise and Zach, if you guys don't mind coming and joining me on the stage, we can give them a hand and welcome them up here. Thank you, guys. Um, Man, you guys have been a real blessing to our church for the last couple of years. Denise, you've been serving here for a couple of years in children's ministry. I know my daughter Marina is really going to miss you teaching her class. Um, but just a real great example of, of faithfulness to serve in a way that a lot of times I think goes unseen by a lot of people. And in the same way, Zach, you've been serving here uh, at Discovery uh, on the soundboard, up here on the worship team, um, when your Discovery group is, is doing coffee, doing all that kind of stuff as well. And, and so both of you guys, I think, have, have been a good example for our community of what it looks like to be a student and not just attend a church or, or check out a church, but actually be a part of the life of a church for the season that you are here. So we're really grateful uh, for both of you for kind of setting the bar high in that way. Um, Denise is going to be going to Southern California to USC, uh, fight on. I married into that family. Um, didn't go there myself, but that's great. Um, she's going to be uh, pursuing her master's of education and teaching credential. And, and from what I can tell, you are going to be an awesome teacher someday. So uh, we look forward to hearing some stories about that. And then Zach is not technically graduating, but he is going to be moving to Fresno to continue doing research on a PhD, right? So you've still got some work ahead of you, but will not be doing that here with us uh, anymore. So we have uh, this morning a gift for you guys, a little thank you, and then I want to pray for you specifically, and then I'm going to pray for all of our students uh, as well, uh, and then we can give them one more round of applause. So come here and let me pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we do uh, acknowledge the bittersweetness of this morning and these moments uh, throughout the year where we do have to say goodbye uh, to people, especially people who um, have been involved in so many different ways and have been such a blessing here. So we pray this morning over specifically uh, Zach and Denise. We pray for any other graduating seniors uh, or folks who are going to be moving on in the next couple of weeks. God, thank you for their commitment uh, to serve and to lead here at Discovery for the ways that you have used them to be an example of, of faithfulness and deep involvement in the life of a church, especially during 
uh, this stage of, of being a student. God, we pray for their next uh, endeavor, that you would continue to lead them and guide them. May they be sensitive uh, to your spirit uh, as they move into new communities and uh, new opportunities to grow and to serve. May you uh, give them a, a great vision for their life and for how they can use these skills and talents and abilities that you have given them to be a blessing and to build your kingdom all over the world, God, wherever you may lead them next. We also pray for all students um, who have been a part of our church, who have been a part of other communities during the year, God, that you would uh, protect them as they travel all over the world this summer. Uh, and again, God, would you continue to be at work in their life, um, speaking to them and growing them and challenging them even uh, during this break in their normal rhythm. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you guys again. Give them one more hand. And then as I get set up here for a minute, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand and someone on our team will, will come around and make sure you have a copy of the Bible. And if you have a Bible or a phone, you could be opening to Matthew chapter 19. That is where we will be this morning. Oops. And uh, before, we, before we get into that, just a, a couple of, of things sort of housekeeping-wise as we move into the summer, I want to talk about uh, some things that will be happening with, uh, with gatherings, groups, and generosity here as we move into the summer months. These are the three areas that we have kind of named. This is where we spend a lot of our time and our, and our energy. So in the summer for gatherings, one fun opportunity that we have, a different uh, rhythm that we step into is this thing called Church in the Park. And, and the last Sunday of each month of the summer, June, July, and August, we do not meet here in the theater. We meet around the corner in the park just past uh, where the, the tennis courts are. And, and this is a great opportunity for us to live into two of our core values, relationships and joy. And, you know, we, we love what we get to do here on Sunday mornings in the theater when, when we worship uh, together and when we open God's word together and, and, and get to hang out and all that good stuff. But there's something about being in that park that breaks down some barriers, that allows new relationships to form, that reminds us that fun is spiritual, and that's a beautiful thing when we get to spend uh, that time over there. So mark those dates down. Don't forget about Church in the Park. Uh, our groups this summer will be entering uh, pretty quickly into a new rhythm or a different rhythm. So if you are already a part of a group, just take note of that. Make sure you're on the same page with, uh, with the rest of your group about what that uh, new rhythm will look like. And if you are not currently connected in a group, the summer is actually a really good time uh, to try some groups out and maybe find a good spot for you because there is... Uh, we are experimenting and doing some different things and doing more social things. And so it can be a real easy place to just jump in and join uh, what is already happening. So feel free to talk to me about that or email any of our group leaders. I'm sure they'd love to, to let you know what their summer plans are. And then last thing in that, that generosity category, David talked about this a little bit just a, a moment ago. But again, I want to piggyback off of that and remind us of the importance of that 4th of July Event. For us, generosity is not just what we do with our money, it's how we live our lives. And the 4th of July is a great opportunity for us as a community to be generous and to tangibly demonstrate the good news of Jesus to our community. The city loves that we participate in this thing. It builds great relationships and rapport with people, and it's an opportunity to show people what our community is like who may not come through the door on a Sunday morning. So if you are around on the 4th of July, if you have an hour, two hours that you can give to help making that possible, it will go a long 
long way towards making that day a success. And, and you never know who you might connect with at that event who then becomes a part of what God is doing in and through discovery. All right, Matthew chapter 19 is where we are this morning. Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce. This is the perfect Sending Sunday text. I'm so glad it lined up this way. That's a joke, okay? <laughs> all right, marriage and divorce. This is a difficult conversation, all right? This is a difficult conversation for our community for a lot of different reasons, okay? For, for every single one of us, we come into a space like this this morning with different experiences around marriage and divorce. Some of us are married. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us are remarried. Others of us, we may feel like that's a long ways off uh, in our life, or we've just been impacted or touched by it in some way. And so when we start talking about marriage and divorce, it's going to bring up some stuff, right? And, and we bring this stuff into this place with us today. In addition to that, we, uh, we live in, we are steeped in a culture that is just deeply ambivalent about marriage. Sandra Singh Lowe wrote an article in The Atlantic called Let's Call the Whole Thing Off. And, and this article is so fascinating. It's, it's part, uh, partly her reflecting on her 20-year marriage coming to an end. And then it's also full of all of this sociological research on marriage trends in the West. And she says that America is kind of an outlier in Western countries when it comes to marriage. We are more religious and more pro-marriage as an institution, and yet we get divorced at a higher rate than other Western countries. She says it this way, although we say we love religion and marriage, religious Americans are more likely to divorce than secular Swedes. And she says our, our culture is paradoxical. We have this uh, this culture around marriage, and yet this culture that's built on individualism and pursuing personal happiness above all else. So maybe another way of saying it is this, we love weddings, but a lifelong covenant relationship with one person till death do us part freaks us out. At the end of the article, she explores some very creative alternatives to traditional marriage, and then she closes by saying this, here's my final piece of advice, avoid marriage. Avoid marriage, or you too may suffer the emotional pain, the humiliation, and the logistical difficulty, not to mention the expense of breaking up a long-term union at midlife for something as demonstrably fleeting as love. And this, I think, is where a lot of people in our culture are when it comes to marriage. Let's call the whole thing off. So the question for us today is, do Jesus' words in Matthew 2,000 years ago, do they have anything to speak to our paradoxical, ambivalent posture towards the institution of marriage? All right, that's where we're headed this morning. Let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll dive into to the text. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again to be able to gather and to come into this space uh, to worship and to be together, to drink coffee, to laugh, um, and also to hear from your word. And so, God, this particular text that we happen to be in this morning, it is difficult and challenging and, and um, at the same time also brings up, I think, a lot of different things that we have all experienced in some way. And so, Father, help us to enter now into this moment 
as, as freely as we can so that we can hear in a fresh way a reminder of the big story. The big story that you are telling through history. Help us not to get caught up in, in some of the some of the parsing and, and some of the arguments that, that um, we can get pulled into, but to remember again the big picture of what you are doing, the things that you are for and the direction that you are calling us, what you have done through Jesus and what you continue to do in individual lives and in communities and in this world as we move into the future. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Matthew 19, it begins like this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So here in the first couple of verses, we get some context for the conversation that is about to happen. These things refer to Matthew chapter 18. This is where we were last Sunday, if you were with us. This, uh, Matthew 18 was this big teaching, the fourth of five big teachings in the book of Matthew. Remember, Matthew splits uh, or organizes his book around five discourses or teachings of Jesus. That was the fourth one. And in that teaching, Jesus invites us to remember how much God has forgiven us, to remember the great extent of his mercy towards us, to allow that to begin to transform our hearts and our lives and subsequently the way that we interact with each other, the ways that we extend mercy and forgiveness to each other. Now it turns out this is the last thing that Jesus says in Galilee. And this is significant because Galilee is where Jesus is from. It's where he spent the majority of his time in the book of Matthew. And given that we know how the story ends, this is Jesus essentially saying goodbye to his people. All right, the last things that he says to his community that's been with him for most of his life on earth, what does he say? He says, forgive, keep on forgiving, extend mercy as you have been given mercy. Now we see that he's moving south, getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. And this is significant. Today we begin the sixth part of our seven-part journey through the book of Matthew. We're calling this section or this part anticipation because the story is beginning to near the end. And as we get closer to the end, Jesus is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. Two times he's told his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die there. And so we're beginning to get these clues that this is where the story is headed. Jerusalem, of course, the capital. It's where the temple was located, and it's also where most of the religious leadership resided and spent their time. So Jesus heading right into the heart of this conflict that has been brewing now for many, many chapters. And again, there's this sense of anticipation. The drama is heightened as this story is beginning to come to its conclusion. Now, our scene today begins in very familiar fa fashion. Jesus shows up somewhere. There's a bunch of people, this big crowd. He has compassion on them. He starts healing people. And then, of course, the Pharisees show up. Verse 3, the Pharisees came to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, the Pharisees testing Jesus, nothing new. We've seen this over and over again throughout our journey through Matthew. And so the question is, 
why this issue? What, what is it about divorce that is such a big test at this moment in this story? There's so many other things they could go after. Jesus has been making some very audacious and bold claims about being Lord over the Sabbath, about being above the law, being greater than the temple. I don't know about you, but to me, those feel like much bigger deals than his opinions about divorce proceedings. At that time, though, divorce was a huge, divisive, hot-button issue. It's kind of like us, you know, asking, what's your position on gay marriage or abortion? These are like these hot button, like, ooh, what do you think about that kind of things? That's what divorce was for them at that time. It was a vetting question. It was, here's the line in the sand. What side of the line do you stand on? And at that time, there were two big schools of thought in rabbinical Judaism. One was built around the leadership and teaching of a rabbi named Hillel and the other around a rabbi named Shammai, all right? Hillel and Shammai were kind of the two big schools of thought. Hillel was the more liberal of the two. They had a much looser interpretation of the law. And when it came to this issue of divorce, they really believed this phrase that the Pharisees use in the question that they bring to test Jesus. They really believed any and every reason was grounds for divorce. If your wife refused to be intimate with you, divorce. If your wife disagreed with a decision you made, fill out the paperwork. If your wife ruined your dinner, divorce. And it's kind of funny, but it, it, I mean, it, this, is, this was literally, they, they wrote this stuff down. You can go and look these kinds of things up. Uh, the school of Hillel really believed any and every reason. Now, Shammai, on the other hand, much more conservative, had a, had a far stricter view of the law. And when it came to divorce, said, uh, probably not a great idea, but here's still a long list of reasons uh, why you can get a divorce, most of them very extreme kinds of transgressions. Now, in general, the Pharisees sided with Shammai. They were definitely into these stricter interpretations of the law. And you get the sense that the Pharisees are wanting to see, is Jesus going to side with Hillel? He's been playing fast and loose, at least in their eyes, with the law, this is their chance to prove what a raging liberal Jesus really is. Now, whatever their motives might have been, it, it does feel like this is probably the beginning of a multifaceted attack. Let's figure out where he stands on, on this issue, one of the big hot-button issues of the day, and then we can slap a label on him, we can start to attack him, and, and most importantly, we can begin to turn the crowds against him. Now here's the thing. We need to pause here for just a moment. This is not just something that the Pharisees in the first century were into. Christians still do this all the time. And I feel like it's gotten worse in the last couple of years. We, we vet each other uh, on the books that we read and the articles that, that we post. And we like to throw around the word heretic and we draw all these lines in the sand. And meanwhile, there are people living next door to us who desperately need the good news of Jesus. We just colossally miss the point. And so one of my hopes and dreams and prayers for discovery is that we move beyond this Christian vetting. Now, let's look at how Jesus responds to this question, to this test. 
he begins his response with, haven't you read? Which is easy for us to kind of move past, but this is just an awesome burn. Because the Pharisees, this is all they did was read. Uh, They read and argued about the law constantly. And so Jesus says, haven't you read? And then look at where he goes from there. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Notice, Jesus never once in this text mentions the word divorce. He doesn't mention Hillel or Shammai. What does he do here? I think what Jesus does here is so interesting and so important for us. And we'll talk in just a minute about some of the more practical things that Jesus says. But I think there's a thing behind the thing that we must not miss in this text. There's an important hermeneutical principle at work here. Now this word hermeneutics, big fancy uh, theologian word, all it means is uh, the interpretation and study of scripture. And and you'll, uh, if you've been here for this series, you'll know this has come up so many times. There's a presenting issue, point of contention between the Pharisees and Jesus, and they'll talk about that, but behind the scenes or underneath that is this issue of interpretation and discernment. And once again, presenting issue, discernment and interpretation, the thing behind the thing. Now a little bit of review, all right? We've talked several times about these three orthos, right? Orthodoxy, right belief, and orthopraxy, right action. Both are needed and good. But we can recite all the right beliefs and we can do all of the right things and our hearts can still be messed up and foolish, and as we'll see in just a moment, our hearts can still be incredibly hard, even with the right beliefs and the right actions. This is the problem of the Pharisees. And so over and over again, we've seen Jesus inviting us into something even deeper than that, and the the fancy word here is orthokresis, right discernment or wisdom. And a critical part of orthokresis of discerning and interpreting scripture, it comes down to where you start the story. You have to ask the question, where does the story begin? And this is something I'm very passionate about. We're going to do more teaching on this in the near future. But for today, I do not want us to miss the fact that when Jesus is given a chance to weigh in on the big divisive issue of his day, again, he doesn't uh, debate the merits of Hillel versus Shammai, or this view, or that commentary, or what so-and-so has to say. He grounds his answer in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Jesus discerns from the biggest possible scope of the story of Scripture. And here's one thing I really want us to, to hear this morning. Far too often... There's this tendency, particularly with Christians, to start the story in Genesis 3. And we start the story with, you are a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad person. And there's this problem and it needs to be resolved. And so here's Jesus. And the story is fall, redemption, fall, redemption, fall, redemption. 
Now, don't get me wrong. This is a huge part of the story, an important part of the story, but this is an abbreviated version of the story. And it oftentimes leaves us with a very small, very individualized gospel. The story begins in Genesis 1. Creation, fall, redemption, and then one day the thing we look forward to and hope for and long for, full restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. The story is it was good. God created everything and said it is good. It is good. It is very good. And yes, there was a violation of that goodness. We have rebelled against the way that God intended the world to function and flourish. We call this sin. And the good news is that God doesn't turn his back on us. God doesn't leave us in this condition. He pursues us. And most specifically, he pursues us through the person of Jesus. Jesus who makes it possible through his death and resurrection for us to live in that goodness again, right relationship with God again. And then we hope and we long for and we pray for that moment in the future when everything is made right, everything is truly good again. And the real question here is not what is the problem and how do we solve it? The question is what does it look like to participate in that story? What does it look like to participate in that story? This begins to tie together so many of the themes that we've seen in Matthew. We've seen Jesus talking over and over again about this kingdom of heaven. And we've defined it as a kingdom of right relationships. Right relationship between us and God. Right relationship between each other. Right relationship between human beings and the rest of creation. This series of right relationships, this web, this hierarchy of right relationships is what the Old Testament writers call shalom. This is the way that God intended the world to flourish and function. Now watch this. This is going to get back into Jesus' answer here to the Pharisees. One of the key manifestations of shalom, of right relationships, is oneness or wholeness. Jesus quotes to the Pharisees Genesis 2.24, the two become one flesh. That word one in the Hebrew is this word echad. Everybody say echad. And then, you know, make sure you don't spit on the person in front of you, okay? Echad. This is both a number, but also an idea. Unity, togetherness, wholeness, oneness, shalom. Now, later in the Old Testament, one of the more important passages in the Old Testament comes in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is teaching the people of Israel how they should pray. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. In a couple of weeks, we'll see Jesus reference this as the summary of the whole Old Testament story. This is a prayer the people of Israel would recite daily, often several times throughout the day. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is Echad. The same word used to describe God, to tell us something about who God is in the most important Hebrew prayer is the same word used in Genesis 2 to describe marriage. A union of a man and a woman. There is something deeply mysterious and beautiful about a man and a woman joining together in marriage. 
It reflects the very nature of God to the world. And it is a picture, it is a reminder, it speaks to the deep intimacy and unity that Jesus says was always how it was intended to be. And it's bigger than that too. This is our role as God's image bearers, as disciples of Jesus. We are to be for shalom, for akkad. We are here to help create wholeness by living in the kingdom of right relationships and inviting other people into this kingdom. This is why mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation are so important to Jesus. Why he keeps talking about them. They're not just nice things that Christians do to be good people. This is how we participate in the big story of the universe. And of course, nowhere do we need mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation more than in marriage. And I hope you also see divorce is heartbreaking to God, not because of laws and rules and morality, although there are certainly elements of that. It's heartbreaking to God because his design is for us to live in shalom, in oneness, in right relationship with him and each other. Divorce cuts against the grain of God's desires for his creation. Separation is the opposite of shalom and oneness. Now the Pharisees still have some questions about all of this, right? Verse 7, they come back at Jesus still very much on this orthodox, uh, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, technical level, saying, but hey, wait a minute, didn't Moses uh, command us uh, give us some, some ways in which we can pursue divorce. And we see this in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Now, real quick observation here. The Pharisees say, didn't Moses command? But notice how Jesus responds to them. Moses permitted. Again, here we have this issue of discernment and interpretation. The Pharisees, Moses commanded. Jesus, Moses permitted. Why did he permit it? Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your heart's were hard. And then look at what he says. It was not this way from the beginning. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there are, are countless books and articles interpreting what Jesus means here in verse 9, especially that word accept. And we're not going to get into the weeds on this one. Maybe at some point we'll do a, a deeper dive on this. But I just want to pull a couple of important conclusions out of, of Jesus' response here. The first is this. Jesus does leave room here for our mess. We are sinful people. We violate shalom in a million different ways. And as we saw last week, reconciliation between two people is not always possible. All right, not every relationship, not every marriage can be saved. And so Jesus does provide an acceptable exception. But he also makes it very clear, this, uh, it was not this way from the beginning. And, and in doing so, Jesus sets the bar here so much higher than Hillel and Shammai. It was not this way from the beginning. He grounds his interpretation in the big story. And reminds us, God's desire is for 
marriage, for marriage to work and to flourish. God is on the side of fidelity and covenants and promises and grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation. And that should be our bent as well toward, towards those things. And then because God ultimately desires relationship with us and for wholeness and shalom to flourish, he wants our hearts to be transformed by Jesus. What's at stake in this passage is not who has the correct interpretation of the divorce laws, but what is the condition of our hearts? Hard hearts always go looking for loopholes. Parsing the details and the definitions, looking for ways to justify ourselves and our behavior. Soft hearts have surrendered to God's great grace and mercy. Soft hearts ask the, a much different set of questions. Do I trust God's intentions? Do I trust his bigger story? Do I desire shalom and right relationship or am I just looking to get my own way? And justify my behavior. But the good news is that Jesus wants to give us soft hearts. Jesus can transform our hearts if we repent and turn to him and allow him to do that work in us. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Well, as if all that wasn't enough... The disciples are watching this whole thing go down and once again having a hard time figuring out like what to do with what Jesus is saying here. Look at their response in verse 10. If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. This is the same conclusion that Sandra Lowe came to in that article, right? No one can do this. This is impossible. Just call the whole thing off. And then Jesus responds in this very strange way. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, again, just a great passage for Sending Sunday. Now, as weird as all of this is, I want us to, again, not miss something going on underneath the surface here. Jesus, in this conversation with the Pharisees and the disciples, deeply affirms two groups of people. Jesus affirms women, and he affirms those who are not married. Now, whether you followed Hillel or Shammai or someone else, the first century divorce laws completely favored the men. And women suffered terribly under these laws. And it's easy for us to think, well, that was, you know, 2,000 years ago. We live in the 21st century. We're way beyond that. Um, not a problem for us anymore, right? No, no. It's now much easier for either gender to initiate divorce, but divorce still favors men in so many different ways. Women tend to suffer the consequences of divorce more economically and in the reality, at least statistically, that they're less likely to remarry. So when Jesus here raises the bar, tightens the parameters for divorce, he is making a very strong statement about the value 
of women. A radical statement for that time. It would have been unprecedented for him to answer these questions in this way. And then in this word about eunuchs, Jesus affirms those who are not married. The vast majority of people in his day and age would have gotten married, not because you know, of, of love or, or um, some online dating app or whatever, but because uh, that's just how their society worked. And if you were physically able, essentially, you got married in order to keep the family together and growing and productive. And so those who were not married, those who were unable to, to uh, reproduce either because, again, by birth or by procedure, it, it made them social outcasts. And so Jesus' words here about accepting this kind of life show him once again radically affirming another category of person that his society looked down on. Now again, today, we don't necessarily look at unmarried people in, in the same way that first century looked at eunuchs. However, there are pockets of our culture. There may be people in your family. And there are certainly people in the church or, or parts of the church where marriage is greatly elevated over singleness, which is not a term that I like at all, but I'm going to use it a few times just for the sake of the conversation. In the kingdom of heaven, you are valuable and worthy and loved, regardless of your status, married, unmarried, divorced, remarried. You are valuable and worthy and loved. And again, nothing demonstrates this more clearly for us than Jesus coming to earth as a man, living among us for 30 plus years and giving his life for us, his death and resurrection. You are loved and worthy and valuable no matter your status. Now to close, I do want to speak specifically to a couple different groups of people within our community. So just hang with me here as we come in for a landing, all right? So first, if you have been divorced, if you have experienced divorce, and particularly if you've been through that and you still carry with you shame or guilt or a sense of inferior status, especially inside of a church community, remember, again, how big God's grace and mercy are and that you are worthy and valuable and loved. And also, there's an opportunity in front of you for a new and a better story. An opportunity to participate in shalom in a whole new way. And so I think the question there is, what does that new story look like? How can you begin writing a different story even now? Second, for married folks, so many different issues within marriage. I just want to hit on one. To be married, in the immortal words of uh, Eric Taylor from Friday Night Lights, by the way, good, uh, if you're like struggling for something to kind of, you know, uh, some content or whatever to spark conversation in your marriage, watch this show and discuss it, uh, discuss the relationship between Tammy and Coach Taylor. You'll have so many great things to talk about, all right? I'm, I'm dead serious about that. Here's what he says at one point in the show. Marriage requires maturity. Marriage requires two people that will listen to each other. And marriage, most of all, requires compromise. Now, in some places, this word compromise is a dirty word, but it comes from the Latin roots for mutual promise. 
mutual promise. Making promises together mutually is one of the best definitions of marriage that I can think of. And again, a million different challenges in the marital relationship. The one I want to address today, uh, in order to become one flesh, to reflect the oneness of God, we have to be able to make promises together. And so some questions here. What promises do you need to remember? Do you need to remind each other of? What new promises do you need to make together? In order for your marriage to become more of a picture of the oneness, the echidness that God calls us to. And then finally, two challenges for a community around, again, around singleness, which is a term I don't like. (laughs) First of all, for those of you who are married, love and include unmarried people in your life. I think too often those of us who are married, we get sucked into our little world of our marriage and our work And then if we have kids, we get sucked into that world of kids, and we end up isolated from each other. Married people, create space in your life for single people, for unmarried people to be a part of your relational circle. And then finally, for unmarried folks, again, so many different challenges in our day and age in navigating this part of life. But I want to speak to one thing in particular. If you have a desire to be married, if if you sense that is where things are going for you, there will be a point where there's a huge amount of pressure on you to live together. And and, uh, there's a pressure, I think, from from kind of a social or economic side where it just makes a lot of sense to do that. And then I think kind of the, the other side of that is this purity culture that just says like, no, don't do that. And I don't know that that's always that helpful. And so I want to talk to you about what I would consider to be a third way, a different way of thinking about this challenge. To me, this is a Jesus-shaped way. This is a the one who can accept it should kind of way. Again, if you desire to be married, if you sense that uh, this is where your life is going, you're in a relationship that's headed towards marriage, you need to remember that in order for a marriage to thrive, it requires that you do difficult things. It means saying no to things so that you can say yes to one thing. I do not get to watch every basketball game that I want to watch. And I, you can laugh about that, it's fine. I don't spend my money on whatever I want to spend it on. And I don't say any of this as a lament, not at all. But I say it to point out how I live my life differently as a married man than I did as an unmarried man. So part of it is enjoy this season of freedom that you have, but also remember that in the context of a marriage, in order to be one, in order to reflect God's oneness, it requires that we sacrifice and give up things. And that can be really hard. But my word to you, again, if you desire to be married one day, if you want to set yourself up well for marriage, start doing difficult things now. Practice the spiritual discipline of saying no. And one of the best ways, one of the most practical ways to do this, to demonstrate I'm the kind of person who can do hard things, even when there's an easier option, is to choose not to live together before you are married. Are you with me? Now, whatever your experience has been, again, I want to pull this, like Jesus does, pull this back out to the biggest possible scope. Whatever your experience has been, remember the story begins 
in goodness, in oneness, with shalom, right relationship. And the story will end with this goodness, this shalom fully restored. In fact, the picture we get of the ending is a picture of a wedding. Revelation 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God, Echad, Shalom, right relationship. This is how the story begins and this is how the story will end. And we want to be a community that is formed by this larger story. May we not get sucked into some of the the, the vetting and the parsing and these kinds of silly conversations. Instead, may our hearts be transformed by the good news of Jesus. By his grace and his mercy, his forgiveness. May our hearts desire and pursue what God desires, redemption, restoration of shalom. So my question for you this morning, wherever you are at, How are you participating in that story? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again acknowledge that this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus and his disciples, it brings up a lot of stuff for us. And we went through a ton of content this morning, and it still feels like we barely scratched the surface of this conversation. So we ask first and foremost, God, for soft hearts, that you would remove that heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart that is in tune with your desire to be in right relationship with us and for us to be in right relationship with each other so that we can reflect your oneness to a world that is so broken, so separated at times, that deeply desires and cries out for this redemption, this restoration that you promise us. So, Father, first and foremost, again, I pray for our hearts that you would soften them this morning. I also pray that, again, whatever stage of life we might find ourselves in, that we would be pursuing this big story, that it would make sense of the particular stage of life that we find ourselves in right now, whether that's unmarried or married, whatever our family situation is, God, may we be pursuing your wholeness and your shalom individually and as a community together. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our time together this morning taking communion and then uh, worshiping. You'll have a few moments here to sit and reflect on what you have just heard. Again, sit with that question. What, in what ways am I pursuing God's shalom with this moment in life that I am in right now? When you're ready in a few moments, you can come and take communion. There's some stations at different uh, places here around the theater. You can take that piece of bread representing Jesus' body broken for you. And dip it into that cup, representing his blood spilled for you. The lengths that God has gone to pursue us, to bring us back to him, to be in right relationship with us. 
So you can take it and you can eat that when you are ready. And then again, sing uh, with us. Join us in worship as we close our time together this morning.